We've been going through some lessons uh, from Abraham, things that we can learn from Abraham and his life. I'd like to look at another lesson this morning. The Sunday school lesson this morning was a really good springboard for at least part of this message, maybe not for all of it, but part of it, as we look at uh, Abraham being a host and interceder. I'd like if you would turn with me to Genesis chapter 18. And we first of all look in this story, we see Abraham and uh, some things that happen in his life, and then we're going to take a look at some things that happen with Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. So in this area, in this passage, I'd like for you to notice that Abraham will host three guests that come to his home. We'll talk more about those. We'll see that Sarah laughs at a promise that's given. God tells Abraham why he is going to Sodom, and we'll see that Abraham intercedes for Sodom, or at least attempts to. We'll also notice that um, Lot will host two angels, and Sodom proves its wickedness. We can see that in the story. We'll also see that Lot escapes, and Lot's wife is destroyed and Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed. Now I'd like for us to notice some of the following things as we go through this lesson. As I read through the the passages, I want you to kind of keep your eye out for some of these things. One, it's uh, never too late uh, for God to fulfill His promises. God desires a very personal relationship with us. And the question can be asked, is anything too hard for the Lord? That question is actually asked in the text. And God knows our very thoughts and our deeds and uh, our doubts and what we're doing. And it's also God wants us to intercede for others. Also notice some of these following things, that God has mercy and grace. We'll see that time of uh, when Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed. We can also become accustomed to our sinful, sinful culture, and I think this is one of the things that goes along with our Sunday school lesson this morning. And I hope there are some things we notice in this lesson to help us be reminded that we don't want to become accustomed to those things and, and become part of the culture. We can also see that God will rescue his bride, and we will see God's judgment and wrath. So let's go back and start reading in uh, chapter uh, 18, verses 1 through 8 to start with here. Excuse me. And it says, And the Lord appeared unto him in the plains of Mamre, and he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and lo, three men stood by. And when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door and bowed himself toward the ground. And said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in thy sight, pass not away, I pray thee, from thy servant. Let a little water, I pray you, be fetched, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will fetch a morsel of bread, and comfort your hearts. After that ye shall pass on. For therefore are you come to your servant. In other words, that's why you came here. And they said, So do, as thou hast said. And Abraham hastened into the tent unto Sarah and said, 
Make ready quickly three measures of fine meal. Knead it and make cakes upon the hearth. And Abraham ran into the herd and fetched a calf tender and good and gave it unto a young man and he hasted to dress it. And he took butter and milk and a calf which he had dressed and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree and they did eat. Now it would appear that Abraham seems to recognize his guest. You can notice this in uh, a number of the verses here. And we can also know that maybe one of the reasons he recognized them is because this isn't the first time that God has appeared to Abraham. But he ran to him, and it says in, very, in the first verse there, it says, uh, and the Lord, and the Lord said this. And the word there uh, is Yahweh, Jehovah, the Jehovah God. Now, it's interesting that in verse 3, when he says, my Lord, it's not Jehovah, but it would indicate that I am your servant, you are a Lord. That, verse, that word could be used for the Lord, God, or for a person who is in charge. Now, what we probably have here is either a theophany or Christophany, and if that's a word that you're a little not familiar with, just to kind of help you Understand that God appeared to men uh, in the Old Testament. And often this was a theophany. In other words, God appearing to man. A Christophany was often where he actually appeared in the form of a person. We would call this a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Often the term the angel of the Lord is used. And if you look at it, and you look at the setting, and there are not, we could have looked at a number of verses, but that's not really what the message is about this morning. But you can see that it was not necessarily an angel in the sense of just a messenger from God, as often angels are. are. But there are places where those angel, well, the angel of the Lord actually accepted worship and sacrifice. And if you look at angels, they never do that. They say, no, 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 you worship God and God only. And so we would recognize that there are places in the Old Testament where God actually, or Christ, in the form of a man, comes to speak and to deal with people. And we believe that's what was going on here. And I think you'll see that as we go on a little further through the message. Now, it's an interesting, there's a uh, verse that we, we see, you know, in, in Hebrews where it says, Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. And some people have stories of situations where they entertain a guest or someone, and, and all of a sudden they were either gone or they, they did something, and they were, later they're like, I wonder if that was actually a person, or was that an angel that I entertained unawares, that I had contact with. And we don't often know for sure, but, but there is the fact that the, the writer of Hebrews does tell us that we should be careful because we may actually entertain an angel in a setting and not even realize it. And you'll see that Lot does the same thing. So when we get to the story of Lot in this passage, recognize that Lot has these men come in, and I don't know that he actually realizes for sure who, who he has as guest uh, at least at the beginning of that story. But he was entertaining them, or he was hosting them, and thus they were angels. 
A couple other things to note in this, in this passage, according to uh, the way I understand the, the tradition in, in that part of the world at that time, is the host did not eat with the guests necessarily. They might, but they often would get things together and they'd actually set the guests down and they would serve them and they would stay back and actually do all the serving. They were the ones that were serving them. And you can see that that was happening here. Also, the women would often not mingle with the guests. They wouldn't become a part of the, the, the hosting and so forth. They might do the work behind the scenes, but they would kind of keep themselves hidden. And there are a number of reasons for that. And that probably goes along with the question then when they ask, where is Sarah? And we're going to see that in a little bit. Now, I find this interesting that, that Abraham, he meets these people and he wants to, to host them and, and he calls them Lord and he recognizes, I believe, that the Lord is there and he wants to wash their feet and serve them in that way and then he wants to make them a meal. And if I, the measurements there, we don't know for sure where he, when he tells Sarah to get these three measures of fine flour. He didn't want the, the junk flour. He wanted fine flour. He wanted the best. And it definitely was over a half a bushel, maybe as much as three-quarter of a bushel of fine flour. Well, you make that all into cakes, and uh, you got quite a pile of food there for people. But he wanted to make sure, apparently, they were well-fed. And then he sends somebody out to get the fatted calf, you will. Go out, or he goes out and gets his calf, picks a nice one, gives it to a young man, and they butcher this calf, and, and they bring milk and butter and this bread and everything. That didn't happen in 10 minutes. This was not a fast food situation. They didn't uh, tell somebody, well, call out for a pizza. We've got some guests here, and I don't know what we're going to make them, so let's get something made quickly. Uh, There's a lot of time went by. I don't know what all they talked about during that time. God doesn't record it in his word. We don't know. Uh, but they, they rested there under the tree. Abraham visited with them, and when everything was ready, they set it out, and they served them. And then when you get down to uh, verse 9, he says, Where is Sarah thy wife? Now, I don't know if in the conversation he had said, Well, are you married? Yeah, what's her name? And so forth. They discussed this. We don't know that. If they hadn't talked about her, that would get your attention. The guy says, where's your wife? And, and names her. And he said, well, she's in the tent, which was kind of common at that time. And then he gives a promise. And I'd like to read these next verses here. He says, and they said unto him, where is, this starting in verse 9, where is thy wife? And he said, behold, in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return unto thee according to the time of life. And lo, Sarah, thy wife, shall have a son. And Sarah heard it in the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old and well-stricken and aged, and it ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I am waxed old, shall I have pleasure, and my Lord being also old also? And the Lord said unto Abraham, and notice now the Lord is saying this, Wherefore did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I of a surety bear a child which am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the time appointed, I will return unto thee according to the time of life. And they would have understood that as a period of time. They knew what he was saying. He's basically taking this promise that Abraham has had before, 
And he's putting a timetable on it now and saying, this is when it's going to happen. And Sarah shall have a son. Then Sarah denied, saying, I laughed not, for she was afraid. And he said, Nay, but thou didst laugh. He said, You did, you laughed. You, you don't have to deny it. You did laugh. So God here is, is again reiterating and again pointing out his promise to Abraham that he's going to have a son. Now, I'd like for us to think about something. Does God know your doubts? Does God know when you don't believe him? Does God know what's going on with you don't even say anything? Because it does say here in the passage that she laughed within herself. She was close enough that she could hear what they were saying. And she may have snorted just a little bit when she she laughed, I, but it doesn't say that. It says she laughed within herself, and it would seem as though she didn't just laugh outside and make a big deal about this because, uh, first of all, she probably wouldn't have been able to deny that, and secondly, I think she would have been afraid to do so. Turn with me to Psalm 139, and I want to read that passage as we think about God knowing what we're thinking. And we don't have to be afraid of God knowing what we're thinking if we're thinking the right things. And even if we have some doubts and questions, as long as we're not, um, I guess, losing our faith, if we're not saying God can't do this or God can't do that. So in Psalm 139 it says, O Lord, Thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down-sitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thoughts afar off or long before I even think them. So not only does God know your thoughts, He knew you were going to think the thoughts that you're thinking. Okay? Thou compass my path and my lying down, and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, Thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before, and laid Thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain unto it. Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness as the light are both alike to thee. For thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret, and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, Yet being unperfect, and in thy book all my members are written, which is continuance, which in continuance are fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. How precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God. Now notice he's turning this around and he's saying, Not only does God know my thoughts, but God's thoughts toward me are are wonderful. 
How precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they are more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with thee. Surely thou wilt slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, ye bloody men, for they speak against thee wickedly, and thine enemies take thy name in vain. Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee, and am not I grieved with those that rise up against thee? I hate them with a perfect hatred, and I count them mine enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. In Psalm 94.11 it says, The Lord knoweth the thoughts of man, that they are vanity. In other words, he knows our thoughts, and they're really kind of, kind of vain. He understands that, though. He understands that we are but made from the dust of the earth, and he understands those things. And yet, sometimes we have thoughts that if we really stop and, and fathom the idea that God knows what I'm thinking, would we change what we're thinking? And confess and, and say, God, those aren't good thoughts, whether it's something that we have um, against someone else or we're devising something that's not right or we're, whatever our thoughts may be, bitterness, anger, um, worldliness, whatever our thoughts might be, if it's something we wouldn't say and express verbally to God, then we better not think it because God knows it. Now, our thoughts come out of our hearts. We can see that in Psalm 139. So if we find ourselves having thoughts that we wouldn't want God to have or to know, then we ask God to change our hearts, not just our thoughts, because our thoughts proceed from our heart. He asks this question here, is anything too hard for the Lord when he's looking at this promise? Well, that's an interesting question. Can God do anything? Maybe is a question I should ask, and don't answer that. It's kind of a trick question a little bit. God cannot do anything. You say, well, what do you mean? What? Well, the Bible says God cannot lie. God will not do anything that violates his righteous, holy, and just nature. He cannot do those things. Is anything too hard for the Lord? No, with the exception of this, perhaps, and that is God will not force someone to worship and honor and follow him. Now, God may put many things in someone's path to steer them, to pull them, convict them, to do his best, but there comes a point in free will beings where he will not violate our ability to choose either to serve him or not to serve him. But thinking about this idea is anything too hard for the Lord. As we look at the situation here with Sarah, we can tell from the text she was beyond the ability to give birth to a child. I mean, we can see that from the text. There comes a point in a woman's life where she is no longer physically able to have children. It's the way God designed it. And it's a good thing God designed it that way. I don't think it would be that great if... 70 and 80, maybe 90-year-old ladies would just be still having children. At some point, there needs to be, and God saw that, and God made it, that after a certain age, 
Women don't have children. And Sarah was well beyond that age. And yet, God said, is anything too hard for me? When it comes to something like this, there's nothing too hard for God. There's nothing. God was going to bless her with a son because God promised it. God said it was going to happen, and this is what was going to happen. And I, I wonder if the reason that Sarah was this old when she had the promised son was so that God could show that nothing was too hard for him, that this son was a son of promise, and that it was a miracle child. There was no question here. Was this a miracle child? Was this a child that was born just like every other son? Or was this a son that was born because God saw to it that he wanted him to be born and it was a son of promise? And that's what happened. Now, we go on in this story, and I want to continue through the story and and not dwell too long on each section, but remember that God will fulfill the promises that he has made for you and for me and the promises in his word, and they're not too hard to fulfill. Now, as we go on, and we notice in, in verses 16 through 33, God shows Abraham what he's going to do. And I want to read, uh, first of all, a few verses there, and then we'll stop and, and come back and look at some of those and then finish up the reading. But first of all, it says in verse 16, And the men rose up from thence and looked toward Sodom, And Abraham went with them to bring them on their way. So they're leaving, they're headed for Sodom, and and he walks with them a little ways. Now from what I understand, from where they were to Sodom was about a two days journey. But you'll notice it didn't take the angels two days to get there, by the way. But it was was farther than than what you might think. But yet you could see the area, you could see the later the smoke rising up from that area. Um, And it says, he he went on with them a little ways. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him. They shall keep the way of the Lord and do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. So this is a prophecy regarding Abraham. God knows his character. God knows how he's going to lead his family. He says, And the Lord said, Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which is come unto me, and if not, I will know. And the men turned their faces from thence and went toward Sodom, But Abraham stood yet with the Lord. So here we see that that Abraham goes on with them a little ways, and then they stop, and and the Lord says, Well, should I keep a secret from Abraham, this righteous person, of what I plan to do with Sodom and Gomorrah, and why I'm going there? And it's interesting that God has told us in His Word some things that are going to happen in the end. God did not keep everything from His people. Now, there are some things we can't quite agree on exactly how it's going to be, and we, can't, we don't know exactly how some things are going to be, but the fact is we know that the Lord is coming back. We know that. I think 
most Christians can agree on that. If you can't, you're probably not a believer of the Word. We know there's going to be uh, a place for the righteous, and we know there's going to be judgment for the wicked, and there's going to be destruction. We know those things from what God told us. And God told Abraham these things, so what was going to happen? He said, I'm not going to keep it from them. God has not kept everything from, from his people. Read and, and believe his word. He wasn't going to keep everything from Abraham. And so he tells him a little bit what's going to happen. Now, it's interesting. He says, I'm going to go down now and take a look and see if it's like I've been told. Now, we just got done talking about the fact that God knows everything. God knows thoughts. God knows what's going on. If you go back to the Tower of Babel, God also said there, let us go down. See what's going on down there. And I think it shows us that God takes things seriously here on earth. And he inspects what's going on. And he pays attention to what's going on. And this was a way for God to show Abraham, I believe, and even the people of Sodom and Gomorrah that this is happening for a reason. I have come, I have seen, and here is what the results are. Now, Interesting enough, Abraham decides he's going to try to intercede. And that's what he does. Abraham intercedes, and I believe God wants us to intercede for people. Now, I want to show you something. Uh, we're going to uh, jump ahead just a little bit. I want to show you something here before I go through this passage on intercession. If you look over in chapter 19, we're going to go back and look then how how. Abraham intercedes, but jump over to chapter 19, and if you look at verses 12 to 14, it says, And the men said unto Lot, Hast thou here any besides, son-in-law, and thy sons, and thy daughters, and whatsoever thou hast in the city, bring them out of this place, for we will destroy this place, because the cry of them is waxing great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. And Lot went out and spake unto his sons-in-law, which married his daughters, and said, Up, get you out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But he seemed as one that mocked unto his sons-in-law. So in verse 12, it says, he says, Hast thou any besides, son-in-law, and thy sons? Now, he, it does not say later that he talked to his sons. So you could say, well, they were just asking if he had sons. He had no sons. But it does mention sons, and it's plural. So we're going to assume that Lot had two sons. And then he also goes on here, and he talks about um, sons-in-law. Well, again, it's plural. It's not just one. And so if there's sons-in-law, there's at least two of them. Could have been more. We don't know that. Could have been, could have been more. And if he had sons-in-law... Well, they would have been married to his daughters, right? So he had at least two married daughters. So there's two more in his family. And then we know he had two unmarried daughters. They escaped with him. And then, of course, there is Lot and his wife, which comes to a total of ten. So Abraham probably knew something of Lot's family. And he is beginning to intercede, and he's starting to do some numbers things with the Lord. And let's go back and read that now. As we go back and look at uh, Abraham interceding here. He says, 
In verse 23 of chapter 18, And Abraham drew near and said, Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Peradventure there be fifty righteous within the city. Wilt thou also destroy and not spare the place for the fifty righteous that are therein? That be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteousness should be as the wicked, or the righteous should be as the wicked. That be far from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So he's, he's kind of reminding the Lord, look, you're the judge of all the earth, and if there's 50 righteous people there, are you going to just destroy them? Is that the right thing to do for a righteous judge? And the Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. I wonder if that's one reason why there are some countries today that haven't been destroyed yet. There are still enough righteous within the land that God says, I'll wait. I'll hold off. I'll wait. But there comes a time when the number of righteous is not enough to save the land. And we'll see that as we go through this passage. Towards 26, it says in the Lord, uh, in verse um, 27, And Abraham answered and said, Behold now, I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord, which am but dust and ashes. He's saying, I, you're, you're the Lord, but I'm dust and ashes. Peradventure there shall lack five of the fifty righteous. Wilt thou destroy all the city for lack of five? And he said, If I find there forty and five, I will not destroy it. And he spake unto him yet again and said, Peradventure, or suppose, there shall be forty found there. And he said, I will not do it for forty's sake. And he said unto him, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Peradventure, there shall thirty be found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find thirty there. And he said, Behold now, I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord. Peradventure, there shall be twenty found there. He said, I will not destroy it for the twenty's sake. And he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry. <clears throat> Excuse me, I will speak yet but this once. Suppose ten shall be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for ten's sake. And the Lord went his way as soon as he had left communing with Abraham. And Abraham returned unto his place. You see the number that Abraham got it down to? Ten. Could it be that he was thinking, I, I know in Lot's family there's at least ten people, and, and we're not talking, there could have been more than this. Could have been grandchildren. Likely there were. If, if, if I can just get it down to the number to where it's, it's Lot's family, and maybe I can save those wicked people. He was interceding, I believe, for the people, and he was also interceding for his family. And I believe God calls us to do that yet today, to intercede for those around us. Lawrence mentioned that we pray for the, the one that stole his vehicle here last week. I, that's intercessory prayer. That's, we're interceding for someone who may not call upon the Lord himself. But if we pray... Perhaps God will bring something into his life, some type of conviction, something. And so here he was. He was interceding for the people that God would not destroy them 
Well, let's go on and take a look at what happens in Sodom. Now you'll notice there in the first verse of chapter 19, And there came two angels to Sodom at even. And Lot sat in the gate of Sodom, and Lot, seeing them, rose up to meet them and bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And he said, Behold now, my lords, or this would be more the idea of um, lords not in a sense of God, turn in, I pray you, into your servant's house, and tarry all night, and wash your feet. You shall rise up early and go your ways. And they said, Nay, but we will abide in the street all night. And he pressed upon them greatly, and they turned in unto him, and entered into his house, and he made them a feast, and did bake unleavened bread, and they did eat. Now, I uh, want to notice something here in verse 1. Two angels came there. Now, you remember there were three men came to Abraham, to his tent. But he called one of them Lord, and he talks about the Lord. And then you'll see that he walked with them <clears throat> on their way till they, till they got to a certain spot. And then it says that Abraham talked and communed with the Lord. I don't know about you, but I often pictured this situation as these men left, and then Abraham is praying and kind of communing with the Lord that way. But having studied this, I don't think that's what happened. I think of the three men, the Lord stayed there and visited with him personally, and the other two went on because the two angels show up in Sodom, but... It says that the Lord went on his way after he communed with Abraham. He doesn't go to Sodom. The two angels show up there. And those are the ones that Lot invited into his home and asked them to come in and to stay there. <clears throat> it says then in verse 4, But before they lay down, the men of the city, even the men of Sodom, compassed the house round, both old and young, and all the people from every quarter, and they called unto Lot and said unto him, Where are the men which came in unto thee this night? Bring them out unto us, that we may know them. And Lot went out at the door unto them, and shut the door after him, and said, I pray you, behold, or brethren, do not so wickedly. Behold, now I have two daughters which have not known man. Let me, I pray you, bring them out unto you, and do to them as it is good in your eyes. Only unto these men do nothing, for therefore came they under the shadow of my roof. And they said, Stand back. And they said again, This one fellow came to sojourn. Now he's talking about Lot, and this is going to, I want you to think about this a little bit later. So Lot came there as a sojourner. He was, you might say, an alien in the city. He, he was not one of them. And it said, and he will needs be a judge. And if you notice in verse 1, he was in the gates of the city, or there at the first part of the chapter, which often the judges of the city would be in the gate of the city. And so I just want you to keep that in mind, considering where Lot ends up with his family as we go on. Now will we deal worse with thee than with them? And they pressed sore upon the man, even Lot, and came near to break the door. But the men, or the angels, put forth their hand and pulled Lot into the house to them and shut the door. And they smote the men that were at the door with the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves to find the door. <clears throat> and the men said unto Lot, Hast thou any here besides, son-in-law, and thy sons, thy daughters, and 
Whatsoever thou hast in the city, bring them out of this place, for we will destroy this place, because the cry of them is waxen great before the face of the Lord. The Lord hath sent us to destroy it. And Lot went out and spake unto his sons-in-law and his married daughters, which married his daughters, and said, Get up, get you out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But he seemed as one that mocketh unto his sons-in-law. I think we'll stop there for a moment. Well, actually, let's, let's go on. I'm going to read on a little further here. Um, when the morning arose, then the angels hastened Lot, saying, Arise, take thy wife and thy two daughters which are here, lest thou be consumed in the iniquity of the city. And while he lingered, the men laid hand, hold upon his hand, and upon the hand of his wife, and upon the hand of his two daughters. I can picture this. They didn't want to go, and these angels, one grabbed a hold of uh, Lot's hand, and one, his wife's hand, and the other one grabbed a hold of one daughter's hand, and the other, and they're practically dragging them out of the city. They brought him forth and set him without the city. Came the pass when they had brought them forth abroad, he said, Escape for thy life. Look not behind thee, neither stay thou in all the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest thou be consumed. And Lot said unto them, O not so, my Lord, behold now, thy servant hath found grace in thy sight. Thou hast magnified thy mercy, which thou hast showed unto me in saving my life. And I cannot escape to the mountain, lest some evil take me and I die. So he's afraid to go to the mountain. But it's interesting, he changed his tune a little bit later. Behold now, this city is near to flee unto, and it is a little one. O let me escape thither. Is not it a little one? And my soul shall live. And he said unto him, See, I have accepted thee concerning this thing also, and I will not overthrow this city for the which thou hast spoken. Haste thee, escape thither, for I cannot do anything till thou come hither. thither. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun was risen upon the earth when Lot entered into Zoar. Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and that which grew upon the ground. But his wife looked back from behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. Now keep in mind, they were already in Zoar when she looked back. She became a pillar of salt. And Abraham got up early in the morning to the place where he stood before the Lord, And he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah, and toward all the land of the plain. And behold, and lo, the smoke of the country went up as a smoke of the furnace. I I wonder what went through Abraham's mind. He He had pleaded with the Lord, if there's only ten, if there's just ten, if there's just ten. And he goes and he looks to see, and I... Suppose he was hoping to see a beautiful sunrise and nothing going on. He looks and he sees the smoke rising up. The disappointment Abraham must have had, knowing that God could not find ten righteous people in all of Sodom. Now, he didn't probably know at this point that Lot had escaped. I don't know if or when he found all of that out. Notice in verse 29 it says, And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered 
Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities which Lot, which Lot dwelt. And Lot went up out of Zoar. Now he was afraid to go to the mountains earlier, remember? And dwelt in the mountain and his two daughters with him, for he feared to dwell in Zoar and dwelt in the cave he and his two daughters. So originally he was afraid to go to the mountains. He wanted to go to Zoar. Now he's afraid to be in Zoar, so he goes to the mountains. What we see in this passage, we see the city of wickedness, and we could spend a lot of time talking about uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and the evils that were there. We know of their terrible perversions. We know they didn't take care of their needy. And we know that Jesus often used them as in parables or in phrases saying it will be worse for this group of people than it was for Sodom and Gomorrah and so forth. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. But I do want us to think about the fact that um, Let's, let's turn to 2 Peter, actually. I want to go to 2 Peter and read some verses. And I want you to notice the setting, or the, what, what's said here about Lot. Second Peter chapter 4, or chapter 2. Actually, I don't think I have the chapter in there, but it is chapter 2, starting at verse 4. For if God, and he's talking here about false prophets and teachers, for if God spared not to angels that sin, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into change of darkness to reserve unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly, and deliver just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. Now notice that. For that righteous man dwelling among them, in seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the ungodly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. He goes on, I'm stopping there even before the end of a sentence. But you'll notice there that God is saying that Lot lived there among those people, and day after day after day, his righteous soul was vexed with the culture around him. And it was vexed, and it was changed, and it was ruined. And I'd like to think about that a little bit. Let's take a look at Lot's life. First of all, Lot longed for the area of Sodom. Remember that? When he was given an opportunity to pick where he wanted to live? He kind of looked that direction. And then Lot chose land that was close to Sodom. And then the Bible says that Lot pitched his tent towards Sodom. And then we see that Lot moved into Sodom. Now, I want to make one thing clear. There is absolutely nothing wrong with moving, even with your family, into an evil city if you're moving there for the right reasons, to share the gospel, spread the good news. People do that. There's nothing 
Matter of fact, we take the gospel of Jesus Christ to where the people are at. But I don't think that's why Lot moved toward Sodom. He looked and saw how wonderful it looked there. Interesting enough, if you go there today to the area that they think was where Sodom and Gomorrah were at, it's where the Dead Sea is at, and there's nothing there that's alive, basically. Nothing lives in the, in the Dead Sea, and there's not much else living around it. It seems like it's a forever curse to that area that God destroyed it. But at the time, it was well watered. It was beautiful. A lot wanted to go there. And then he pitched his tent, and he moved closer, and he moved closer, and he moved closer. And I want to ask some questions now, if you think about that. And again, I'm not talking about necessarily where you live physically. I'm talking about where you are, your spiritual life, and your practices. How close do you want to move to the world? And I see people, I see young families, and I've observed this throughout my life. People that just can't quite accept the fact that God has called us to be separated from the world. Well, this little thing doesn't just matter too much, does it? This little thing doesn't. It doesn't matter if I just move to the outskirts of Sodom. It doesn't matter if I just move to the outskirts of where the world system is at, where the world thought patterns are at, what the world does, how they think, how they act, where they go, what they do, how they dress, and on and on and on. If I move just kind of at the edge, it won't matter, will it? Well, how close do we want to move? At some point, Lot vexed his soul over and over and over. He became accustomed to the point where he moved into town, and it would appear was even maybe one of the, the judges of the city, or part of the government. And sometimes we hear these calls, we should become part of the government so we can change the culture around us. It doesn't work that way. Will you make it through the escape? In other words, there's a time coming when the Lord's taking the righteous out before he destroys the wicked. Will you make it out? And you might say, yeah, I will. Will you lose your family in the meantime? Will your family make it out? And I think that's the thing that's so disturbing in this story of Lot. Yeah, Lot managed to escape, but what all did it cost him? Who all did it cost him? It cost him his wife. It cost him his children. It cost him his grandchildren. He basically ended up with two daughters. And if you read on in that chapter, you can see what they did to try to keep the family lineage going. And those people ended up being a, a pain to the children of Israel later. Might it have been better for Lot if he would have stayed a little further away from the culture he was at. God destroyed the wicked here, and God's going to do it again. And I mentioned the Dead Sea gives evidence of it. God talks about destroying with the flood, and the earth gives evidence of that as well. In verse 29... There's something here that I think helps us maybe understand a little bit, a picture of the Christian escaping the coming judgment and wrath of God. As we think about 
Lot escaping. It says, And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot dwelt. Now, you've got to be careful here. You can run off and take off on, on a Calvinist path here pretty easily. <clears throat> but the fact is, when God comes back for His church, He's not coming back because you and I are so righteous and so perfect outside of faith in Jesus Christ. It says that, that God remembered Abraham who the Bible says was justified by faith and also by his action. And I believe in this case that Abraham was a type, if you will, of Christ in the sense that, <clears throat> excuse me, first of all, Abraham had interceded with the Lord. And there's a sense in which Jesus Christ, well, it is, it's not just a sense, Jesus Christ is sitting at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. And God will listen to His Son, Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ was righteous. There was no unrighteousness in Jesus Christ whatsoever. Now, we can't say that necessarily about Abraham in the sense that he made no mistakes. But when he came to deliver Lot, it doesn't say he did it because Lot was such a great person. He did it because he remembered Abraham. And Abraham had interceded for him. Now, that does not mean that we can get involved in the culture like I was just talking about and become wicked and lose our families and, well, because of what Jesus did, I'm going to be saved. If that's your attitude, you're lost already. And you're not going to be saved when the wrath comes. But there is a sense in which Jesus Christ is the one whom God will remember when we are delivered out of the wrath to come. And there is wrath to come. But, of course, it is based upon whether or not we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. God will remember His Son in the rapture, but you must be ready. I'd like for you to turn to another passage, and I realize we went a little while here. Uh, let's go to Luke. As we think about this passage being, uh, this, this whole story being typical of the church being delivered out before the wrath comes upon the unbelievers. And you'll notice this in its context in Luke chapter 17, starting in verse 24, and I'm jumping into the middle of, of when they're asking when the kingdom's going to come. He says, For as the lightning that shineth out of the one part under heaven shineth unto another part under heaven, so shall also the Son of Man be in his day. But first... Must he suffer many things and be rejected of this generation? And as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage. Until the day Noah entered into the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise also it was in the days of Lot. Okay, now notice this. He's, he's comparing something here to the day of the Lord that's coming. He says, so it was in the day of Lot. They did eat. They drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, notice that? He went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. 
Even thus shall it be in the days day when the Son of Man is revealed. And that day, and it goes on, it gives more comparison. But notice down in verse 32 it says, Remember Lot's wife. Interesting little statement that, that Jesus inserts in here. Remember Lot's wife. Whosoever shall seek to save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life shall preserve it. Remember Lot's wife. I don't know exactly what happened to Lot's wife there, in a sense that she looked back. She was, the story would, if you take the story chronologically, they were already at Zoar when the fire and brimstone started raining. Did she just turn around and look back and was turned into a pillar of salt? Did she get hit with a fireball of sulfur, turned her into a pillar of salt? I'm not exactly sure how God did that. He could have done it any way he wanted. Did she actually turn around and not only look back, but was she heading back and she got I, we don't know exactly, it just said, she says she looked back, God turned her into a pillar of salt. She did not escape. And Jesus said, when it comes to the end times, remember Lot's wife. And we could say, now wait a minute, we're being kind of hard on Lot's wife. If she had grandchildren, children, she, we know she had children back there in, in Sodom. If she had little grandchildren back there, who wouldn't turn around and look back to see what was going on? But there was something about her heart that was still back there, still back there, instead of on what God had commanded to do. Jesus said, if you love father, mother, son, daughter, brother, sister, anyone more than me, you are not worthy of me. And then Jesus talks about the end, and he said, remember Lot's wife. We must be ready for the day when God will fulfill his promises to take us out and destroy this world and everything that will happen when God's wrath is poured out upon this earth and the people that are left here. I'd like to just look at some things that I think we can learn from this passage in this story. One is... God is a personal God. God came to Abraham in a very personal way. Now, I don't expect necessarily for him to come to me. In other words, I don't expect to be out resting from bailing hay and a couple of guys start walking up the lane and all of a sudden I recognize that one of them is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now, if that would happen, forget the hay. I'll tell you that much. Uh, we're going to have a feast just like they did back here. But I don't expect that to happen. But I still know that God's a very personal God, and He wants to have a personal relationship with each one of us. God will fulfill His promises. And God's Word is full of promises. He's, God's Word is full of them. And God wants us to intercede. Is there someone in your life that God is calling you to special time of prayer and fasting to intercede for that person? Maybe it's someone who's decided they want to move just a little closer to Sodom. I'm talking about the world, the culture we live in. Become just a little more accustomed to the culture. After all, does God really care about this? Does he really care about that? That person needs our intercessory prayer because God does care about those things. 
And God cares about the children and the grandchildren of those people. We can become accustomed to the world is something I think we need to learn from this lesson. We can also remember that God will bring judgment, but praise the Lord, He has made a way to escape His judgment. And that way is through the Lord Jesus Christ and our faith and obedience in Him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the lessons in your word. Thank you that Abraham was a man who loved and served you, followed after you, and Lord, thank you for his examples. Help us, Lord, to remember that the world, the culture, and the things around us will all be destroyed. It's the things that you call righteous, Lord, and the things that you call right, and the things that you call good that will endure forever. So, Lord, help us to remember that. We live in this world, Lord. Help us to be able to intercede for others without becoming like others in our interceding. Lord, I just pray now for each of us that we would truly follow you and all the things that we say and do so that we'd be pleasing to you and that you would call us home to be with you someday. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.